Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 found, if you're using the, one of the red Bibles that are available back there, if you need one, there's a cart uh, with some Bibles, officially known as the Red Bibles. Page 956 in that. <clears throat> I think we're all pretty familiar with the um, gap that can sometimes be between theory and practice, right? Something that looks good on paper, it makes sense, but then when you actually put it into practice, just doesn't work or can even be uh, downright destructive. I think it's illustrated well in some of those old black and white film clips of flying inventions. Have you seen some of these film clips uh, from like the earliest 20th century, the ideas that people had as they were just uh, beginning to invent, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, airplanes, that the different ways to, to get off the ground and the ideas that people had and the inventions. And, you know, there's the one with sort of the umbrella thing and it starts going bouncing up and down and it just drives itself into the ground. Or there's the one, the guy who... Um, he made, somehow fastened to a bicycle, these long wing-like, just like bird's wings, and, and, and rigged it up so that when he rode, the wings would do like that. He just imagined that if he rode fast enough, he would take off into the wild blue yonder. Or the one where the guy uh, to a cart, uh, hooked to a ramp, and then sort of the, the, the glider wings, and he thought if he went down the ramp really fast, he'd just go flying. And, you know, <clears throat> they're hilarious to look at, right, to watch these videos, and they, they all fall apart. But when you stop to think about it, I mean, some of the theories behind uh, those inventions are pretty sound. I mean, umbrellas kind of catch the wind and take off, so maybe if I could do a big umbrella thing. Or, you know, birds, they have wings, so if I could just create some wings that would be big enough, I could fly, or if I picked up enough speed. It, it makes sense on theory and in, on paper. But in practice, um, disastrous, even painful results. Uh, well, this morning, the text that we're going to look at from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, reflects a situation like that in the church in Corinth, something that, that they were doing that looked good on paper. It, it made sense logically, even theologically in many ways, but in practice, it, it resulted in some disastrous, even painful, even hurtful things uh, for God's people in that location. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is again answering a question that the Corinthian church had written to him about. If you go back one chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll notice that it begins with uh, words like this, now concerning the matters about which you all, you guys, wrote to me. And then you see there's a, um, a bit of text and quotation, probably taken that's in quotes because they think maybe that came directly out of the Corinthians letter to Paul. And Paul is now well into a section where he is answering concerns that the Corinthian church had and wrote to him to kind of get his apostolic uh, ruling on. Again, if you keep going down uh, to verse 25, you see, now concerning the betrothed, another item from their list. And then we come to chapter 8, now concerning food offered uh, to idols. And you'll notice right away that this is, is a situation that we don't necessarily deal with. 
food offered to idols in our context, in our world. In fact, Christians, at least in, in the West, have not dealt with something like this for many, many uh, generations. And so we can come to a text like this and kind of say, well, it's kind of a weird concept. Um, you know, I saw Dave grilling in the backyard the other day and there was a lot of smoke, but I wasn't assuming it was sort of a burnt offering um, going on there. Uh, so we're really not dealing with this. Does it, how does it relate? Well, I, I want to encourage you to stick with me this morning because I think you're going to find that the principles that Paul addresses, particularly as a result to the life of the body, and I would say particularly to the life of the local church, have great relevance for each one of us this morning. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, notice quotation marks here, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food to idols, offered to idols, we know that, again, notice a quote here, possibly right out of their letter to him, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, and that, quote, there is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, believers, yet for us, church, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother or your sister and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat at all, lest I make my brother or my sister stumble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will stand forever. Amen. Well, Paul is uh, addressing an issue that uh, is not familiar uh, to us. So I think we do need to begin this morning looking at what the Corinthians' issue is. And after we look at the, the issue in the Corinthian church, uh, we're then going to look at the apostles' instruction or response to that issue. And then finally, we're going to look at the implications for us. So that's sort of our roadmap this morning. The, the Corinthians' issue, 
the, the apostle's response, his, his instruction, and then the implications. How does this relate to us in the local church? So let's start with this issue. It's not a familiar issue. It's one that the, uh, the Corinthian church is wanting to get Paul to make his apostolic ruling about. Again, this is the third issue so far that we've seen Paul begin to address, and there are going to be others as we continue on through the book. And the issue is that of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and, and this would have been very common in, throughout the Greco-Roman world in the first century, and certainly in a major city like Corinth that had uh, many temples. Uh, that someone, a, a pagan, a, an idol worshiper, just the average Corinthian, would go and would sac- have an idol or would have an animal sacrificed as worship to an idol. A part of that animal would be compl- completely burnt up as a burnt offering. Uh, Part of it would go to the priests, sort of their income. And part of it might be sold in the marketplace. Paul is going to deal with that in the succeeding uh, chapters here. In fact, all of uh, 8.1, if you look through uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he's dealing with this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And then finally, there'd be a portion that would be uh, served up in a meal. And these meals would have been very common. There were, uh, there's excavation of idol temples throughout the world there that have dining areas in them. And it was just a very common thing to even be invited, sort of like going out to eat with your friends at the temple. And there would be great uh, civic citywide celebrations and gatherings where people would eat food, particularly meat, uh, which would have been a delicacy for a lot of people if they didn't have the means that would, had been sacrificed and dedicated to an idol. There really wasn't a separation of sort of sacred and secular in the ancient Roman world. It was very much a, a pagan environment. They believed in many different gods, and that was fine. You can believe in your God, and you can believe in your God, and you can believe in your God. There's pluralism. We can all get along. We can, we can tolerate that, but just don't tell me my, your God's better than my God, right? But we can all sacrifice to our gods. We can all eat the meat, and that was life in the first century in the city of Corinth and many other places. Well, we have a a classic situation here of of believers, people coming to faith in Jesus Christ as they hear the gospel in the city of Corinth. And now, what are the implications for my life? How do I live in this pagan environment where people believe in all kinds of different gods, where there's food that has been dedicated to idols? How do I live in this world without becoming part of the world again? How can I go to places that might even remind me of my my former life before Christ? It's a universal challenge throughout the ages uh, for the church. And in this particular church, with this uh, issue of food sacrifice, particularly meat sacrifice dedicated to idols, we've got two groups, two sort of viewpoints, opposing viewpoints in the church. We're going to go through this text in a second. We have the knowers. The knowers are those who say, hey, we can eat this with a free conscience. Idols aren't a real thing. There's only one God. And so who cares what somebody else thinks this this steak was dedicated toward? I like steak. And I'm going to go. I can even go to an idol temple because an idol isn't a real thing. So what's the difference whether I'm in an idol temple or a gymnasium or my office or whatever? On the other side, you have the weak. That is, they have weak or more delicate consciences. And they grew up worshiping idols. 
and, and are reminded of everything that's associated with idols when they go into an idol temple. And so to have a meal in an idol temple, food that's been dedicated to an idol, that seems like idol worship to them, and their conscience is violated. They feel that they're sinning. And the Corinthians have now written to the Apostle Paul. Which side is right? Uh, is it the eaters or the abstainers? Is it the knowers or is it the ones with the weak conscience? And then we do the same kind of thing, right? We want, we want a ruling on some of these issues. We struggle with how to be in the world and not of the world among God's people. I learned this in a very poignant way several years ago when I agreed to do the one thing in ministry that I said I would never do, namely lead the youth group. I said, Lord, send me anywhere, furthest reaches of the earth. I just don't want to be a youth pastor. And the elders said, Dave, we really need someone to fill in that role, and we'd like you to do it. And I said, okay, you're the elders. God speaks through you. I don't know what language he's speaking through you, but he's speaking through you. And it was not long into my time overseeing the youth group that I learned a word that I had never, you could learn a lot of words in the youth group, but I learned a word that I had never known before. I'd never heard of this word. I had no idea what it was. It was the word tankini. And it came up because we had planned an outing to the beach. And there was a great debate about swimwear, particularly for the young ladies. What would be the appropriate swimwear to go to the beach? Is a two-piece okay? Is a one-piece okay? Or is the middle ground of the tankini? Okay. And so then ensued the great tankini debate. The great tankini, that sounds like a magician or something, doesn't it? Well, I won't, I won't tell you how the great tankini debate uh, ended up. It just was an educational experience for me. And just reminded me again that within the church, we struggle, don't we? That the world has its values, and we don't want to buy into those values. And then what do we have the freedom to do? And, and what do our consciences and our love for one another restrain us and constrain us and, and keep us from doing? Well, that's right where the Corinthians were. And so they write to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, Apostle Paul, guy with the direct line to Jesus, give us a ruling. Who's right and who's wrong? And the Apostle Paul is going to address this, but he's not going to play their game. He's not going to say, Here's the new rule that you have to follow. It's easy to lay down rules, isn't it? Christians do it all the time. Here are the eight or 10 or 50 rules that make you a real Christian or mean that you can be part of our church. You know what that's called, right? It's called legalism. And Paul doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to create a legalistic attitude, but he does, as a good pastor, want to instruct them and he wants to show them how to apply the gospel. So in the way that he instructs them, he wants to show them how to apply the gospel here. So let's go on and walk through the passage looking at the apostles' instruction. We see his wisdom. Now before he addresses the issue as they have presented to him, he wants to redefine the terms of the debate. Again, he wants to give them a bigger perspective, a bigger perspective of how the, how the gospel applies to this issue. And so first, he carefully redefines the issue in the first three verses. Their point, 
which, which seems to be coming from the perspective of the knowers, calling them the knowers. Sometimes we talk about this situation and talk about the strong and the weak in terms of their consciences, but in the passage, it's all about them knowing. I mean, their argument rises and falls on knowledge. The whole idea of knowledge or knowing is repeated like six or eight times just in those first three verses. And so Paul says to the knowers, listen, knowers, there's some things about knowing and there's some things about knowledge that you guys need to know. Uh, First of all, in verse one, knowledge puffs up while love builds up your fellow believer. J.B. Phillips, in his classic paraphrase, uh, just coins this so well. He says, while knowledge may make a man look big, it is only love that can make him grow to his full stature. The difference between being built up and being puffed up uh, is the difference between Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime and his lesser-known cousins Hans and Franz. Hans and Franz seemed properly pumped, but upon further observation, it was just a bunch of puffy stuff under their sweatsuits. They weren't the real deal. They were posers. They were trying to look as if they were properly pumped. But Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime obviously had taken great care uh, to to build himself up, uh, to be strengthened, to grow according to the judges at the Mr. Universe contest, into the the perfect specimen of a human being. And so Paul redefines, hey, what is the motive here? Is the motive you individually puffing yourself up and feeling good about yourself? Or is the motive your brothers and sisters and seeing them built up, seeing them edified? And so right away, he redefines this in terms of relationships within the church and in in terms of their motive or goal. Next, he turns the tables with them in in verse 2 by letting them know this is not as much about the amount of knowledge as it is about the use of knowledge. You know what we call that? Call that wisdom. It's not so much about the amount of knowledge as the use of knowledge. Verse 2. If anyone imagines or thinks that they know something, (laughs) you're in trouble. (laughs) Uh, Because he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, once you think you know a lot, you're kind of on on thin ice. They say that when you think you know everything, they give you your bachelor's degree. And when you realize you don't know anything, they give you your master's degree. And when you realize you don't know anything, but neither does anybody else, they give you a PhD. (laughs) Now, whether it's through formal education or life experience, the longer you live and the more that you think you know, the more you realize you don't know. Paul says, hey guys, this isn't about how much you know. This is about how you are using your knowledge to build up the church. And so now he has redefined the debate in terms of wisdom and humility. And then finally in verse 3, Paul shows that God's knowing takes precedence over anything that we might know. Look at verse 3. It is a glorious verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Uh, Paul isn't saying there that, that our love begins, that, hey, we love God, and then we're known by God. He's actually saying just the opposite. He's saying if anyone loves God, it is evidence that they have been known by God. And as you read throughout Scripture, the, the, the reality of being known by God, of God knowing a person, is a grand and glorious reality. Beginning in the Old Testament, for God to, to know someone, is for him to, to shower his love on someone. For God to know someone is to choose them in love to be his child. It is to love them from eternity past, graciously, apart from anything we do. To be known by God is to be loved first by him. And Paul is saying, that is the bigger deal. That is the much more glorious reality here. That takes precedent. And so now he's reaffirmed, redefined knowledge in terms of God's sovereign grace. And so here in this first section, verses one through three, Paul uh, turns the tables on the, uh, the knowers. One commentator says that Paul is engaging in code switching. I like that. That sounds real cool, kind of Mission Impossible-like, right? He's code switching. He's turning the tables. He's taking their words, knowledge, and he's, and he's redefining them, uh, biblically redefining them in terms of the gospel, saying true knowledge, true knowing is being known by God, which results in me humbly loving God and loving my brothers and sisters. Next, Paul begins to instruct them in verses 4 through 6 by clarifying the content of Christian knowledge. Okay, what are we talking about? What is the actual content of the knowledge here? And Paul, in large part, agrees with their theology. He says, yeah, we know that an idol, know a couple things. We know, one, that an idol is not real. It is no thing. An idol is nothing. Yes, there are so-called gods, there are so-called lords, but they, they don't, they're not real, they don't really exist. Agreed. And we believe, Paul says, and I agree with you, that there is one God. Paul certainly knew that, because the first thing that any uh, Jewish boy would have learned was the Shema from De uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in our Bibles. The Lord our God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. You shall have no other gods before me, but you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your oomph, with all your might. Everybody, every Jewish person knew that. Certainly every Christian who had been trained as the Corinthians were in the Old Testament scriptures knew that, that there is but one God. But Paul lets the Corinthians know that they should know even more than those two little bits of theology. And just look at the high theology of verse 6. We don't know that just that there's one God. Look at all that we know about this one God. That we call him Father. And that he is the creator and the originator of everything. Everything that exists is from him. And we have been created for him. Well, but we know even more than that. We know that he sent his son, our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And we know that, that all things that exist were created through him. 
And we know that through him, we exist. We know that we've become God's children through his son, Jesus Christ. We can call him father because of Jesus' redeeming love for us. So Paul goes way beyond the mere affirmation of monotheism. Yes, there's one God. But he highlights the relational nature of our God. He he highlights the, the covenantal nature of our God. That there is relationship between the Father and the Son. And we know from other texts, also the Spirit within the Godhead. This amazing affirmation, this is one of the key uh, building blocks of the Trinity. If you're, if you're looking for the one text that says, hey, here's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, it works just like this, you're not going to find it. But what you are going to find are dozens and dozens of texts like this in the Bible that when you read them and understand them, begin to understand them, you understand that, yes, there is one God. Yes, he has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we see the relationship and the authority of both the Father and the Son. Jesus mentioned as co-equal with God the Father. This is glorious Trinitarian theology and reality. But it also shows the relationship of God to his people. We were created by God. We were created for God. We can call him Father because we have been redeemed through his Son, our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Paul keeps coming, he's come back once again to our identity in Christ. He's brought the Corinthians back to their identity in Christ. We belong to God through Jesus Christ. Who we are is a result of, you can say it, whose we are. We've said that from day one in this book. Who we are is a result of whose we are. And that identity isn't just my identity individually or your identity individually. It is our shared identity. It is our our corporate uh, purpose. We were created and redeemed together by God and for God through his son, Jesus. And so let's just check, what is it that now we know about knowing as Paul has redefined the debate here? Well, we know that God's knowing of us is the most important thing. And his knowing of us is him in love choosing to redeem us through his son. And this is the most important truth we can know. It is the gospel. And building a brother or a sister up in this truth is the most loving thing you can do for them. That is the priority. That's where Paul is going with this. And so now that he's sort of set the table, now in verses 7 through 13, he's going to begin to make his point. And he still doesn't just flat out state it, but he's going to make his point by way of illustration. He says, yes, there's a sense in which all believers have this knowledge of the oneness of God and the non-existence of other gods. But there's also a sense in which some do not fully possess it. All have access to this knowledge, without a doubt. All have access to the knowledge. There's one God that idols are are no thing, they're nothing. That is true in theory. Yet some do not possess this knowledge in an experiential, sort of practical way. 
Uh, the memory of their former life as idol worshipers is still very vivid and very personal, very visceral. And their conscience is weak. And that's not a knock. Paul isn't saying, hey, you're not a good Christian if you have a weak conscience. But it's talking about a conscience that is sensitive, a conscience that is delicate, a conscience that is vulnerable and ought to be protected by brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says to the, to the knowers, those whose consciences aren't bound because of what they believe they know, and just remember how big a deal knowledge and wisdom was among the Corinthians. It was, it was a thing that they believed defined them as Christians. It was a thing that, that pumped them up. It was a thing that, that they valued more than anything else, to have knowledge, to be knowers. And Paul says to the knowers, listen, if you're in a temple idle temple, eating that dedicated meat. And apparently, if there's some of the weaker conscience people there, and they see you doing that, won't they be encouraged to do the same thing? Won't they be encouraged to eat that meat that their conscience was forbidding them to do, and now they have sinned? And, and now you, you could be a stumbling block. Uh, you could wound them. You could, you could destroy their faith. It's interesting the word Paul uses to say uh, they will be encouraged to eat is the same word that he uses um, in verse 2. Both mean to be built up. He's, Paul is saying, yeah, they'll be built up all right. They'll be built up into sinning. They'll be built up into your destruction of them. And so not only have you sinned against a brother or sister for whom Christ died, you have sinned against Christ. What's the body language there? If you sin against the, one, the least of one of these, my brothers, you've sinned against me. Paul in chapter 12 is going to illustrate the gifts of the, of the Spirit through the illustration of the human body, the connectedness of the body, the body of Christ. He's already preparing us for that. He's already using uh, that illustration uh, that if you sin against one of Jesus' people, you sin against Jesus. And Paul knew that oh too well. Do you remember Paul's former life when he was Saul? Do you remember what he was engaged in when he first met Jesus on the way to Damascus? He was basically the, uh, the DA for tracking down Christians and bringing them to justice, persecuting them. On his way to do that, He's knocked to the ground by this light. He can't see anything. He hears a voice. And do you remember what the voice said? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was persecuting Jesus' people. And Jesus said, yeah, then you're persecuting me. It's the very same reality here. You sin against your brother. You sin against your sister. You cause them to stumble. You cause their faith to be damaged or, God forbid, destroyed. You have done that to Jesus, Paul says. This is really, really serious. This isn't just a matter of preference. I like to eat in, in, idol, in idol temples, and you don't. I prefer this restaurant, you don't. It's not that. This is way more serious than that. Knowledge is not the issue. Freedom is not the issue. Your brothers and sisters, 
the body of Christ, they are the issue. The issue is, is how will I love my brother and sister in Christ in such a way as to build them up, not tear them down through my pride? Because they are precious to Jesus. He loved them. He laid down his life for them. And the question is, do you love them in a way that builds them up? That's where Paul is going. That's, that's the point. Paul is now finally making his ruling on the situation. And here is what he says. Christians ought to be more passionate about their responsibility to sacrificially love one another than they are about their right to express their personal liberty. As believers, we ought to be far more dedicated to, far more passionate and devoted to our responsibility to sacrificially love one another for whom Christ has died than for spouting off and being proud of what we can do, my freedom in Christ. And Paul was so passionate about it. He said, listen, if, if, I'm, if I'm in jeopardy of causing someone to stumble through what I eat, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go vegan. I'm just going to eliminate meat, not just the idle meat, but all the meat from my diet. That's extreme. <laughs> it's the rule of love before liberty. Are you more passionate to love your brother, your sister, sacrificially, than you are about your own freedom. Are we free in Christ? Oh, we are free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because the law is not hanging over us anymore. The law as a means of righteousness has been fulfilled by Jesus. We're not under obligation to keep the law anymore. We are free. And yet, we are under the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Jesus summed up the law. It was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it was also to love your neighbor as yourself. But the whole law and prophets are summed up in these. And so we are compelled, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ, it compels us, it controls us, it constrains us, it governs us. Sometimes cars or vehicles have a, have a governor on them. Maybe all cars do, I don't know. Um, I discovered this uh, several years ago, we were moving cross-country from Illinois to Arizona. Loaded up all our earthly possessions in the, the biggest rider truck that we could find, uh, you know, tagged one of our vehicles onto the back of it, loaded up our very three, very small, one of them very newborn children, uh, and we headed off to move to Arizona where I would be uh, serving in a church in, in the Phoenix area. And as we were driving through West Texas, very flat, very desolate, I look in my mirror, I'm driving my rider truck fully loaded, and there is a U-Haul truck coming up alongside of me, same setup, fully loaded up, car behind it, and he's coming up next to me. And I suddenly feel like I'm at the Daytona 500. <laughs> and so I give it some gas. And the two of us, 
U-Haul and rider trucks begin to race down this desolate highway in West Texas. Only both vehicles have a governor on them. And so neither one of us can go more than 55 miles per hour. I'm hearing in my mind, Sammy Hagar, I can't drive 55. And I can't even drive 55 because that's all the faster this thing will go. And it was the most pathetic thing you could, you'd ever seen. <laughs> Two trucks and we're kind of looking at each other and neither of us can go more than 55 miles an hour. Because there was something governing my stupidity and foolishness on that engine. Which I really needed when we got to the mountains a few hours later. And when the safety of my family and all our belongings was at stake. See, the love of Christ, it, it governs us, it, can, it compels us, it constrains us to not do that which is foolish, to not do that which will tear down a brother or sister. It will prevent us from damaging them, but promote their growth. We ought to be far more enthused, passionate about loving one another than we are about my rights, what I get to do. Now that, I hope you can see, has implications for us, even if we're never going to be setting foot inside of an idol temple slash restaurant. Let's talk about some of those implications here. Three implications in the form of diagnostic questions. I'm going to ask the question, it's up to you to answer it for yourself. First question. Am I significantly invested in the lives of my brothers and sisters in this local church? Am I significantly invested in the lives of my brothers and sisters in this local church? And that's not to the exclusion of being invested in the lives of people outside this local body. We should have warm fellowship with believers. But if this is your home church, if this is your local body, then, then the majority and the bulk and the, the priority of your investment ought to be with the brothers and sisters here, the discipleship relationships uh, that you are in. Now, it's real easy to avoid the kind of relational problems that we read about today or that were going on in the church of Corinth. It's real easy to, do, to, to avoid that. You know how you do that? You come to church on Sunday morning. You warmly greet people during the greeting time. You head out afterwards, drive into your garage, put down the garage, go inside your house, go about your business for another six days, come back and do it all over again. It's easy to, re to avoid relational problems. Just don't have a whole lot of deep relationships, right? But we need to risk that in the church. We need to risk the messiness of our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. And so in order for, for this fellowship or any local church uh, to to be a picture of what Christ would call it to be, there must be a significant level of relationship. In order for us to build us, to truly build one another up, there needs to be real relationships. Are you willing to do that? Are you putting yourself out there? Are you risking it? When you see the face of another believer, are you aware that that is someone for whom Christ died? You're looking at someone who is precious to Jesus. Are they precious to you? Do you care about their sanctification? Do you care about their growth in Christ? Are you willing to let them speak into your life? 
Second question. What have I foolishly relied on to commend myself and others to God? What have I foolishly relied on to commend myself and others to God? Look again at verse 8. This, this whole debate, this whole issue, this whole mess in the church had to do with eating and food and can we eat that? May we eat that? Should we eat that? May we go there? And Paul says in verse 8, listen guys, food, think about what we're talking here. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat it and we're no better off if we do eat it. In other words, food is not a means of grace. Food is not a means of growing in your faith or helping your brother or sister to grow. There's no such thing as a Christian diet or Christian food that will bring you closer to God and enable you to grow as a disciple of Christ. Food is not a means to grace. Nor are reformed websites a means of grace. Nor is the schooling option that I believe is best and that I have chosen for my family. Nor is the Bible translation that I think is the best and that I prefer. I've just listed those things for myself. What are they for you? What are you tempted to rely on that you think will commend, look what I do, look how I do it, God. Oh, look how I do it, everybody else in my church. You should do it that way too. What are you tempted to rely on to commend yourself and others to God? And then thirdly, and, and very related, am I able to recognize the idols in my life and smash them? There's a, a bit of irony in this passage as it relates to idolatry. The folks who are the knowers, they would be the last to say they have any hang-ups with idolatry. They would have said, yeah, we, idols aren't anything, we'd never be tempted uh, to worship idols. Idolatry, that's not an issue for us. And yet they are the ones worshiping at the foot of an idol called knowledge. They believe that, that they're, they're worshiping their freedom and they're worshiping their knowledge and they're worshiping what they think it will do for them and, and how it will portray them to the rest of the body. You see, when it comes to an idol, uh, it, it's not the thing. It's not that whether it's the gold statue in a temple or whether it's the stuff, the money, the material that we all want. It, if that's our idol, it's really not that that captures our attention and draws our worship. Rather, it's what we think that can do for us. You don't want money. You want what money can do for you. You want the freedom it brings. You want the power it portrays. You want the image that it will give you. Or whatever our idols are. And so often they're, they're good things. Yeah, we need money. We need other stuff. They're good things that have become ultimate things. And, and knowledge is a good thing. Paul says all kinds of great things about the knowledge, about growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but it has become an ultimate thing to this group. And Paul says none of us can, or Jesus says none of us can serve two masters. Become puffed up, become, you become prideful. 
But this law of liberty, or this love before liberty principle, it is wonderfully designed to smash our idols. Particularly the idols that, that damage our relationship with one another in the church. The law before liberty principle smashes these idols. It smashes the idols of, of my time. Hey, I work hard. I don't really feel like going to a home group on Saturday or Sunday night. That's my time. The law of liberty smashes that idol and says, what, what obligation do I have to build my brother or sister up in Christ? I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to serve in that way. The law of liberty smashes that idol. The law of liberty smashes the idol of, of my money and my stuff. I, I can't be giving so much. I can't be helping that person out. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're going to waste it. They don't work as hard as I do. The law of liberty says, what do you have that, that wasn't given to you? What do you own that isn't a gift from God? Law, the love before liberty principle smashes the idol of, of my church. Well, this is how I think my church should be run. These are the songs I think we should sing. This is the way we should set up the chairs. This is the kind of outreach we should do. And the love before liberty principle says, okay, what, what is best for all of us together as God's people? How can I love my brother or sister and, and defer to their preference over my own. Friends, when we worship these kinds of idols, good things that have become ultimate things, not only does it rob God of the worship He deserves, it also draws my attention away from my brothers and sisters whom I am commanded to love, even as Christ loved me. We ought to be more passionate about our responsibility to love one another than we are about our rights and our liberty. Listen as I close to how the Apostle John puts this in his first epistle from John, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this is love made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So friends, rejoice in your freedom. If you are free in Christ, you are free indeed. Rejoice in that freedom which originated in the heart of God, in His prior love for you, which was won for us by the Lord Jesus in His sin-atoning liberty-providing death. And use your freedom to lay down your life for one another. Because then love is perfected. It reaches its end goal. 
And then the world would know that we belong to Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we pause for just a moment as we reflect on your word. And we confess our too often lack of love for one another. And we confess our propensity to want the attention on ourselves, to, 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 to be puffed up, to, to impress others with what we know or what we can do. Lord, would you change our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see one another, our brothers and our sisters in Christ? Help us to see them as those for whom Christ died, precious to him, his treasured possession, that we might lay down our lives, that we might sacrificially love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.